Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You know, there are plenty of somber and sad moments in Judaism. In fact, for many Jews, Judaism comes down to little more than tears, eating, fasting, and praying, and taking pride in finding one halachic strindenshi upon another. Or as one humorist put it, Judaism too often is about they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. Perfunctory, mechanical, wrote an emotionally void Judaism is certainly no joy. But that is exactly what so many would tell us that they find in synagogue after synagogue. Tired, unthinking, obligatory, joyless ritual. Too many look at Judaism and see only the challenges and difficulties. It's said that we may overemphasize its theological notions of fear and awe. We may discard Judaism's seemingly joyless practices and observances because they appear too strict or severe. Yet, the very opposite is true. Jewish tradition and Jewish faith encourages the members of the covenant throughout the year to experience joy in our lives. And so this morning, I want to share with you some conversation about how Judaism approaches joy and happiness. This is, of course, a continuation of our conversation about Sukkot, Zman Simchatenu, a time of joyfulness, the Torah tells us. And so even if you did not tune in last week to hear about Sukkot, I want you to know that this is the continuation and that after the high holy days, which are times of reflection and internal consideration of the imperfection of our lives, Jewish tradition calls us upon us to celebrate happiness. Happiness, said Aristotle, is the ultimate goal at which all humans aim. But in Judaism, it is not necessarily whole true. Happiness is of high value. Ashrei, the Hebrew, the closest Hebrew word to happiness is the first word of the book of Psalms. And we say the prayer known as Ashrei three times each day in the traditional Jewish liturgical cycle. But Ashrei is not the central value of the Hebrew Bible occurring almost 10 times as frequently, is the word simcha, joy. It is one of the fundamental themes of Deuteronomy as a book. The root, samech, mem, kaf, appears only once each in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but no less than 12 times in Deuteronomy. It lies at the heart of the Mosaic vision of life in the land of Israel. This is where we are to serve God with joy. As I mentioned, in Sukkot, that is one of the essential commandments. One has to bring fruits uh, to the temple in Jerusalem 
and do so with joy. The Torah reads, Then you shall rejoice in all the good things that God has given you in your family, along with the Levites and the strangers in your midst, from Leviticus 26. The other context is quite different and astonishing. It occurs in the context of the curses. There are two passages of curses in the Torah, one in Leviticus 26 and the other in Deuteronomy 28. The differences are noticeable. The curses of Leviticus end on a note of hope. Those in Deuteronomy end in a bleak despair. The Leviticus curses speak of a total abandonment of Judaism by the people. The people will walk a bikeri with God, variously translated as with hostility, rebelliously, or contemptuously. But the curses in Deuteronomy are provoked simply because... And I quote, you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart out of the abundance of all things, Deuteronomy 28. Now, joyousness may not be the best way to live, but it surely is not even a sin, let alone that warrants a litany of curses. What does Torah mean when it attributes national disaster to the lack of joy? Why does joy seem to matter more in Judaism than happiness? To answer these important questions, we have to first understand the difference between joy and happiness. The first psalm, Psalm 1, describes the happy life. Happy is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat where scoffers sat, But his desire is in the Torah of God. On his Torah he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water, bearing its fruit in its seasons, and its leaves shall not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. This is a serene and blessed life granted to one who lives in accordance with the beliefs and dictates of Torah like a tree, such a life has roots. It is not blown this way and that by every passing wind or whim. Such people bear fruit, stay firm, survive, and thrive. Yet for all that stability, happiness is the state of mind of an individual Simcha in the Torah is not about individuals. It is always about something we share. A newly married man does not serve in the army for the years, says the Torah, so that he can stay at home and bring joy to the wife he has married. Deuteronomy 24. You shall bring your offerings to the central synagogue, says Moses, so that, and I quote from Deuteronomy 12, there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice in all that you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. The festivals, as described in Deuteronomy, are days of joy, precisely because they are occasions of collective celebration. Deuteronomy 16, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns and strangers, the fatherless and the widowless live among you. Simcha is joy to be shared. 
It is not something we experience in solitude. Happiness, however, is an attitude to life as a whole while joy lives in the moment. J.D. Salinger, the great American writer who, in fact, lived as a hermit his whole life, wrote, happiness is a solid. Joy is a liquid. Happiness is something you pursue, but joy is not. It discovers you. It has to do with the sense of connection to other people or to God. It comes from a different realm than happiness. It's a social emotion. It is the exhilaration we feel when we merge with other. It is the redemption of solitude. And I might interrupt here and suggest, of course, that that is why Judaism has never honored in a religious manner solitude, which we might call living alone, or those who believe that rising to the top of the mountain and finding the mystical guru who lives totally without contact with others is the ultimate sense of satisfaction. Paradoxically, the biblical book most focused on joy is precisely the one often thought of as the unhappiest of all, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. Kohelet is notoriously the man who had everything, yet describes it all as chevel, a word he uses almost 40 times in the space of the book and various translated as meaningless, pointless, futile, or empty. Or as your King James Bible famously rendered it, vanity. In fact, though, Kohelet uses the word simcha, happiness, joy, 17 times. That is more than the whole of the Torah put together. After one of his meditations on the pointlessness of life, Kohelet ends with an exhortation to joy. I know that there is nothing better for people than to rejoice and do good while they live. Ecclesiastes 3.12 I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to rejoice in his work because that is his lot. 3.22 So I commend rejoicing in life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and rejoice. 8.15 However many years one may live, let him rejoice in all of them. Ecclesiastes 11. It should be understood that Kohelet can only be understood as a book if we realize that Hevel does not mean pointless, empty, or futile. It means a shallow breath. The book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on mortality. However long we live, we know that we will one day die. That is a truism. Our lives are a mere microsecond in the history of the universe. The cosmos lasts forever while we are living, breathing mortals. Our mere fleeting breath. The author of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, is obsessed by this because it means to threaten to rob life of any certainty. We will never live to see the long-term results of our endeavors. Moses did not lead the people into the promised lands. 
His sons did not follow him to greatness. Even he, Moses, the greatest of rabbinic Jewish prophets, could not foresee that he would be remembered for all time as the greatest leader the Jewish people ever had. In fact, the opposite. Van Gogh sold only one painting in his lifetime. He could not have known that he would eventually be hailed as one of the greatest painters of modern times. We do not know what our heirs will do with what we leave them. We cannot know how or if we will be remembered. How then do we find meaning in life, Judaism asks. Kohelet eventually finds it not in happiness, but in joy, simcha. Because joy lives not in the thoughts of tomorrow, but in the grateful acceptance and celebration of today. We are here, we are alive, we are among others who share our sense of jubilation. We are living in God's land, enjoying God's blessings, eating the produce of God's earth, watered by God's rain, brought to fruition under God's sun, breathing the air God has breathed into us, living the life God renews in us each day. And yes, we do not know what tomorrow may bring. And yes, we are surrounded by enemies. And yes, it was never a safe or easy option to be a Jew. But when we Jews focus on the moment, allowing ourselves to dance and sing and give thanks, when we do things for our own sake, not for any other reward, when we let go of our separateness and become a voice in the Holy City's choir, then there is simcha, joy. Kierkegaard once wrote, it takes moral courage to grieve. It takes religious courage to rejoice. It is one of the most poignant facts about Judaism and the Jewish people that our history has been shot through with tragedy. Yet Jews never lost the capacity to rejoice, to celebrate the heart of darkness, to sing God's song even in a strange land, as we're told by the waters of Babylon. There I sat down and wept. There are Eastern faiths that promise peace of mind if we can train ourselves into habits of acceptance. Epicurus taught his disciples to avoid risks like marriage or a career in public life. Neither of these approaches is to be negated, yet Judaism is not a religion of acceptance. Nor have Jews tended to seek the risk-free life. We can survive the failures and defeats if we never lose the capacity of joy. That is why on Sukkot, we leave the security and comfort of our houses and live in a shack exposed to the wind, the cold, and the rain. Yet we call it Zman Simchatenu, the season of joy. That is no small part of what it is to be a Jew. Hence, Moses' insistence that the capacity for joy is what gives the Jewish people the strength to endure. Without it, we become vulnerable to the multiple disasters set out in the curses in the Torah. Celebrating together binds us as a people. That and the gratitude and humility that comes from seeing our people's achievements not as self-made, but at the blessings of God. The pursuit of happiness can lead ultimately to self-regard and indifference to the sufferings of others. I might parenthetically mention, of course, 
that as you and I watch the tragedies unfolding in the Middle East and the suffering that has led to the millions of people looking to find new homes, one of the great obstacles to integrating people into our own lands as well as other lands is individuals asking, what will become of me if I bring those people to Canada? Will my jobs be affected? Will my schools be affected? Will my life be affected? The emphasis on my often leads us to indifference to the suffering of others. And yes, I know that some of you will say, well, our safety, my safety is of preeminent importance. And of course, our safety is. But there are means by which we can ensure to the best of our ability, because there is no 100% surety here, our safety. But to use the word our, my, as an impediment to responding to the suffering of others is the exact opposite of what Judaism would teach. This kind of indifference to the suffering of others can lead to risk-adverse behaviors and failure to dare greatly. I want you to hear that in the context of the millions of people who are struggling to find a new land, who are struggling to find a better life. And it's true that we could argue whether they're refugees or they're immigrants, and we could argue about whether... They're economic immigrants, and they appear to be many of the Syrian individual families to have um, wealth, and they appear to be middle class. But does that lead us as people of faith not to risk? Does the one possibility of failure lead us not to dare greatly? Joy connects us to others and to God. Joy is the ability to celebrate life as such, knowing that wherever tomorrow may bring, we are here today under God's heaven, in the universe God made, and to which God has invited us to be his guests. You know, toward the end of his life, having been deaf for 20 years, Beethoven composed one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, his Ninth Symphony. Intuitively, he sensed that his work needed the sound of human voices. It became one of the West's first choral symphonies. The words he set to music were Schiller's Ode to Joy. I want to share with you my thought that I think of my faith, Judaism, as an ode to joy. Like Beethoven, Jews have known suffering, isolation, hardship, and reaction, rejection. Yet they have never lacked the religious courage to rejoice. A people that can know insecurity and still feel joy is one that is never defeated, for its spirit can never be broken, nor its hope destroyed. As often, I want to end our chat this morning with a story about joy. 
This is a story from the Hasidic movement, which we have chatted about before, and I hope we have time to complete this story. Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, once asked, why is it that my people Hasidism burst into song and dance at the slightest provocation? Is this the behavior of a healthy, sane person? The Baal Shem Tov responded with a story. Once a musician came to town, a musician of great but unknown talent. He stood on a street corner and began to play. Those who stopped to listen could not tear themselves away. And soon a large crowd stood enthralled by the glorious music whose equal they had never heard. Before long, they were moving to its rhythm and the entire street was transformed into a dancing mass of humanity. A deaf person walked by and wondered, has the world gone mad? Why are the townspeople jumping up and down, waving their arms and turning in circles in the middle of the street? Hasidism concluded the Baal Shem Tov as the Nechemta, as the seal upon this story. Hasidism are moved by the melody that issues forth from every creation in God's world. It makes them appear mad to those with less sensitive ears. Therefore, should they cease to dance? Tradition has it that before the followers of the Baal Shem Tov received the name of Hasidim, they were called the Freilich, in Yiddish, the happy ones. For from the very inception of Hasidism, in fact, perpetual joy was one of the primary distinguishing characteristics of this approach to Judaism. The Baal Shem Tov said the ability to be joyous, be discerning the good by discerning the good and the joyous within every experience is considered as a biblical commandment. The main inspiration in the Jewish communities in the era of the preachers who were skilled narrators of Torah and religious laws. The itinerant preacher's mission was to preach morality and to awaken the dormant spirit of Judaism in the heart of the masses. In the beginning of the 18th century, a new fire and brimstone school became popular, one that preached moral and religious conduct as a safeguard against the terrible punishments of the Day of Judgment. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, opposed the methods of these traveling preachers who criticized and demoralized the Jewish masses in an attempt to motivate them to perform acts of ritual purity. Although such admonition may have its time and space, as we have seen from the harsh admonitions in issued by some of the biblical prophets, the Baal Shem Tov taught that the Jew who had suffered nearly two millennium of exile and persecution need to be further broken by chastisement and rebuke. He recognized that to revitalize the Jewish tradition, he needed to give them a message of hope and joy teaching that joy in itself is precious before God, and the warmth with which we served God was dear to them. 
it is, of course, how the Baal Shem Tov revolutionized the Jewish view on joy. Happiness was never foreign to Judaism. King David declared, serve God with joy. Indeed, some of the earliest rabbinic writing says one should not stand up to pray while dejected, but only while still rejoicing in the performance of a good deed. The concept of simcha shel mitzvah, the joy of a commandment, has always been part and parcel of Jewish teaching. After all, can there be a greater privilege than serving the king of kings, asked the Baal Shem Tov. I could list for you so many different ways that joy was part and parcel of our Jewish life. Joy is what makes Judaism so important. It is true that many Jews think that fasting is more righteous than feasting. Yet the Talmud suggests that in the world to come, a person will have to stand judgment for every legitimate pleasure in his life that was renounced. The Nazarite, the person who in the Bible gave up the pleasures of wine and family loaf to devote himself entirely to God, was called a sinner on the grounds that he gave up the joys of wine when the Torah did not require him to do so. The perception that asceticism is superior to enjoyment is wrong. Many Jews who observe only one holiday a year make it Yom Kippur, a day of great deprivation since eating, drinking, washing, and sex with your spouse are not permitted. Furthermore, Yom Kippur is a day of self-criticism, of repeated confessions of sin, and given a day of yisker, in which the memories of departed loved ones usually bring up a good deal of guilt. Since this is hardly a day of fun, presumably the one or three-day observers in Jewish tradition makes them feel that angst is the imprint of holiness. But Rabbi Israel Salanter once wrote that to be a good Jew, one has to have every human quality and its opposite. The Torah does not consecrate prohibition. It offers the full range of human emotion and behavior. There is, as Ecclesiastes says, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Jewish behavior, Jewish life, consists when one does all of these behaviors. We began by talking about Sukkot, Zman Simchatenu, the time of our happiness, the time of our joy. By making joy holy, it means being selective in the enjoyment of God's gifts, not worshiping those gifts or those who own them. The first and foremost expression of this insight is to share the bounty and joy. Gifts from the harvest were given from to the poor. You shall rejoice before your God and all those who have come with you. There is no one who is immune from Jewish joy. 
those who reject joy reject some of the essential tenets of Jewish teaching. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I wish you a joyful day. I bid you shalom. Yeah.